So these protests began immediately after the election, uh, because not only the election was rigged, it was rigged in a truly grotesque fashion. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Amanda Yun, and I am joined today by my co-hosts Julia Ahn and Megan Rukai. Over the last couple of weeks, thousands of people have taken to the streets in Belarus to protest the recent re-election of President Lukashenko. Lukashenko's government stated that he won with over 80% of the vote, leading many to believe that this election was rigged and the results were fraudulent. Today, we explore the roots of these protests and how Belarusians' call for freedom will impact the country's relationship with the EU, the US, Russia, and its neighboring states. How has Lukashenko maintained power? And what does the future of Belarus look like? To answer these questions and many more, we are joined today by Dr. Dalibor Rohak. Dr. Dalibor Rohak is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the political economy of the European Union. He is the author of two books, In Defense of Globalism and Towards an Imperfect Union, a Conservative Case for the EU, which was included as the best book of 2016 by Foreign Affairs magazine. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dalibor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's begin by providing some context to our listeners about Belarus's political history. Uh, who is President Alexander Lukashenko? And why are so many media outlets calling him Europe's last dictator? Um, Right. So Belarus as a country emerged in 1991 as the Soviet Union was unraveling. And uh, Lukashenko, within a very short period of time, became its unquestionable uh, leader and dominant political figure. He won with a large political mandate in 1994 in the presidential election, and he has essentially turned the country into his own fiefdom. He ran in 1994 as a populist candidate, essentially promising to preserve many of the certainties of the Soviet era, uh, you know, the, the welfare state, the employment in state-owned enterprises, and as such, Belarus has for a long time eschewed, avoided the reforms that took place elsewhere in in the post-communist, in the post-communist world, uh, Lukashenko is not Europe's last dictator by any stretch of the imagination, but he is now uh, certainly the longest ruling dictator. Uh, the other thing that's worth mentioning about about Belarus in this context is uh, is really that, that the political history of Belarus provides relatively few examples of Belarus existing as. Uh, as an independent, autonomous uh, political unit in the past. So in the turmoil at the end of the First World War, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the Bolshevik Revolution going on in Russia, uh, there was a period in which Belarus existed uh, in various shapes and forms as an independent state. Prior to that, it was part of the Russian Empire. Prior to 1795, it was part of the... Uh, of the um, Polish-Lithuanian Republic, and uh, I think that's a that's a distinction that's worth making between between Belarus and say Ukraine or or, or other countries of the post uh, post Soviet space where there is a political history to draw on, and I think it's been uh, really one of the features of of political life in Belarus after 1991 
uh, that there was very little in terms of political history or traditions or, or sort of ideas of statehood or nationhood uh, that people could appeal to. And what Lukashenko leveraged was was really uh, that he was able to fill this void by by establishing the social contract that will sort of preserve some form of the Soviet Union in this country uh, in exchange for essentially unlimited power to, to, to him and to his cronies. Great. So can you talk specifically about the relationship between Russia and Belarus, but even more specifically um, between Putin and Lukashenko, and explain how that relationship influences Lukashenko's hold on power in the country today. Mm-hmm. So as I said, there was much more continuity between uh, independent Belarus and the Soviet Union than there was continuity between many of the other post-Soviet states that emerged and the and and and, and the, the the sort of legacies of of the USSR. So if you look at the Baltic countries, for example, there really was an explicit effort to distance these countries from what had been happening for for the previous 70 years or 50 years under the under, under the Soviet uh, domination in Belarus there was no such effort and although Belarus is a distinct country Belarusian is is a distinct language from from Russian uh, the cultural closeness and affinity between the two is is extremely strong so throughout its existence Belarus uh, has been very tightly integrated with Russia politically and economically. Uh, even these days, uh, you have entire industries in, in Belarus that are almost completely dependent on exports into, into, into Russian markets, industries that would not exist otherwise if it weren't for, for exports to Russia. Uh, Belarus is also dependent on Russian energy. Uh, the two economies are, are, are tightly linked. And politically, uh, what, what Putin... Uh, tried to do was uh, over the years was, was to try to provide an alternative to the European integration project, the so-called Eurasian Union, uh, which has some members around around post uh, post Soviet countries. And with Belarus, uh, this this project of political integration actually went further, and the two countries established the so-called uh, Union State, which is a quasi-federal entity, which essentially merges some some areas of governance together. So, uh, so the Belarus even today is a still a sovereign state. There, there is there is there is a degree of closeness to Russia uh, that 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 it doesn't really exist elsewhere in 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 that space. Recently, it is true that Lukashenko has tried to somehow extricate himself from from that firm Russian embrace. So you might have seen recently. Uh, Earlier this year, in, in, in February, when Secretary Pompeo went to to Minsk, uh, there were talks about diversifying Belarusian energy energy sources away from Russian natural gas and and oil. And, uh, and over the past recent years, that there has been an effort on Lukashenko's part to to essentially try to have it both ways, to try to foster some sort of relationship with the European Union and and, and the West. Uh, while also being aware that there was no easy way for him to 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 extricate Belarus from 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 Russia. So over the past couple of weeks, 
uh, tens of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets across Belarus after the presidential election on August 9th. Um, and President Lukashenko's government reported that he won over 80% of the vote, but, but most people believe that this election was rigged. Um, in your opinion, to what extent was this election really rigged and how did these protests begin? So these protests began immediately after the election. Uh, because not only the election was rigged, it was rigged in a truly grotesque fashion. Uh, what uh, what the uh, activists and, and the campaign of, of of Lukashenko's challenger Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya report is, is that in, in the precincts in which they ran exit polls, uh, her results were somewhere between 60 to 70 percent, uh, you know, which might be off by a wide margin, who knows. Uh, but the results, the official results reported by by Belarusian Belarusian government, uh, were around ten percent for her, right? So, so not only, uh, I mean, that, so that that discrepancy was 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 so massive that that really the government did not even pretend to care about any, you know, veneer of of of, of plausibility or. Or, or, or sort of, uh, you know, li- likelihood that that would be attached to these later you know, past elections in Belarus were certainly rigged in various shapes and forms too. But, but really, this time the regime went went too far. And and it's also true that Lukashenko has been in power for twenty five years, uh, and and that sort of social contract that he put in place early on in his rule um, really was running out of steam. That, that that the economic growth was not forthcoming, uh, that the poverty reduction that took place uh, sometime in, in in the previous previous decade was 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 was, was reversing itself, and, and and there was a build up of sort of opposition activity and and energy people just didn't want to look at his face anymore, and and, and there, were, there were also hints on his part that this would be turned into a dynastic regime, so. So his son would be displayed together with his father, you know, being groomed as, as a possible successor. So, so that really contributed to, to the sense of, of, of dissatisfaction. And then on the election day, you know, it's, it's not that easy to rig an election in, in the era of social media. So there were videos that, uh, that transpired of members of, 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 of these electoral committees in different precincts, leaving the buildings through the windows with some of the some of the ballots with, with, you know, carrying them so that they would not be counted towards the total. And, and, and so there were these sort of anecdotal things that, 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 that started living a life of their own on, 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 on Belarusian internet. And, and obviously that added to this already, uh, you know, fairly inflammable mix that was, that was, that, that, that was there. So you said that previous elections in Belarus had been rigged before. So what were the general public's expectations coming into this one? I don't think anybody in Belarus had an expectation of free and fair elections, just like you don't have expectations of free and fair elections in, say, in, say, Russia. Uh, but given really the momentum behind these, these opposition forces, uh, I mean, the idea that that, that the government would claim that, that Lukashenko won, you know, with 80% of the popular vote was just so far-fetched, so detached from reality that 
it was met with a with a reaction after after the election after the election happened. So you mentioned also that um, from polls of the opposition group, they had um, a majority of the vote. So um, how much support did this opposition garner during this election? And why did so many Belarusians support the opposition party or group? Well, right now it's obviously impossible to tell uh, what the exact number of, 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 of ballots cast in favor of this or that candidate was. Uh, but if you look at the polling, which was done by some of these opposition groups and, and, and the exit polls done on the day uh, of, 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 of the election, it looked like the the opposition candidate Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya should have won by a decent margin. You know, not not probably eighty percent of the vote, but but maybe with you know sixty or seventy percent, maybe 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 could have been a closer lay, a race. But the sort of idea that that Lukashenko won with eighty percent of the vote is just just completely detached from 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 from, from reality. Uh, yeah, you know, the reasons for for the sudden burst of energy uh, of, 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 of the Belarusian opposition has to do really with the, with the fact that the regime has exhausted itself. So, so if you look at the rates of economic growth and, and, and the accumulation of, of economic problems in the country, I think there is an understanding that uh, a simple continuation of, of, of the Lukashenko regime with all the all, 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 all its attributes is is no longer no longer possible, and so there has been talks of economic reforms even under under, under Lukashenko since at least 2016. Uh, but it, I think it's it's clear at this stage that that those economic reforms will have to go hand in hand with some form of political transition that would bring the country closer to democratic standards we know elsewhere, even in, in the post-Soviet, post-communist space. Throughout the last few years, we've seen many democratic protests in response to autocratic governments. What makes these protests in Belarus unique um, and important? That's a great question. Um, obviously, once we saw these pictures from Minsk and from other Belarusian cities, I think many of us unavoidably uh, turned our minds back to 2013 and 14, when uh, thousands of Ukrainians came to the Maidan uh, in, in, in Kiev, and there was a wave of protests across, across Ukraine. Uh, and obviously there are important similarities. I think in both cases, uh, people were tired and are tired of uh, the absence of rule of law and basic freedoms and, and and the pervasive nature of corruption although yeah there, there are important differences between uh, Ukraine under Yanukovych and, and 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 Belarus today most importantly that Ukraine before 2014 was still a pluralistic uh, albeit highly imperfect democratic society Belarus under Lukashenko is essentially a dictatorship is essentially a form of continuation of of the Soviet Soviet Union, but in both cases, uh, this sort of sense of dissatisfaction and desire to uh, to have a you know government that's representative of the people and accountable to to the public 
uh, those, those are certainly noticeable. The, the big difference is is that in Ukraine, by virtue of Ukraine being a pluralistic society and, and you know multi-party system and and, and relatively sort of free environment in terms of civil society and ability of different actors to express their views and articulate the, the political agenda. I think there was there was a much clearer path forward for, for Ukraine after 2014. Here people are coming to the streets because they have had enough of Lukashenko. Uh, but when you look at the platforms of different opposition groups, most of them, you know, very small and and, and, and underfunded and uh, not very professionally organized. I don't think there is a very clear vision of what Belarus should look like uh, when Ben Lukashenko is out. And what what Belarus's place in Europe is, what its future relationship with Russia should look like. And uh, I think there's going to be a problem. I think we've seen it time and time again in, in, in the post-communist world after 1989, that, that in those countries, which had a very clear vision, which was shared around uh, around the country, uh, across various strata of the population, about the direction, about the sense in which the country was going to go, uh, th- they ended up in a much better place than, than countries where uh, that sort of thinking had not uh taken place yet right um so and one one important factor uh in eastern europe uh whether it's in post-Soviet countries, but also in Central Europe, in places like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, which played the role in the 1990s, was, was was the fact that these transitions were not happening in a vacuum. That you had uh, Western political actors, the European Union, NATO, essentially offering a path forward to to, to these countries, a sort of you know path towards political integration with the West. If you you know fulfil these criteria, those criteria, democratize, open up your economies, get rid of the vestiges of state ownership, clean up your banking sector, there might be a possibility for you to join the EU. And uh, and there's been a massive force for the good across Eastern Europe. Uh, in places where that perspective of, of becoming a part of the West was not available, those countries ended up in a in a much worse, much worse spot. So, you know, it was clear throughout the 1990s, uh, throughout the northeast, that Ukraine would not be a part of the European Union, and as a result, there wasn't much of a reform momentum in Ukraine. Right, you had these sort of lingering problems uh, that went unaddressed for for two and a half decades. Uh, and with Belarus, uh, you know, Belarus is in a peculiar position in 2000. Because we know that there is very little appetite on the part of the European Union to pursue further enlargement. Uh, EU27, I think, has sort of reached the point where there is there is a certain degree of fatigue about bringing in another country and sort of idea that there will be another head of state at the European Council making decisions and you know everything will be more complicated and 
and you know these these these, these newcomers uh, every wave of newcomers into the EU brings you know their own baggage and problems now we hear these stories about Hungary and Poland having their own issues with with the rule of law so there isn't that much appetite to to go forward with these with these enlargements but the question is you know what what it is that the west can do uh, short of expanding say the EU and NATO and uh, and I think that's that's the debate we need to have in Washington and in Brussels and in western capitals and I don't think we are having it quite yet uh, because the, the reality of Belarusian Belarusian economy is is one that's really tightly linked to Russia, and as long as uh, Russia continues to exercise the influence over Belarusian politics, which seems unavoidable in at the present moment, uh, we can't expect meaningful reforms in Minsk, Minsk uh, meaningful democratization and. And, and, and also economic reforms. So, so what needs to happen, in my opinion, is, is that the West, through a concerted action of, of the United States and the European Union, needs to put a package deal on the table for, for whoever the next leader of Belarus is to essentially provide an alternative to the continuation of, of, of the geopolitical status quo. Uh, and it's going to be expensive uh, because if... You know, Russians turn off the the, the, the spigot of, of of natural gas. You know, there'll be a very cold winter, and 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 and, and essentially those 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 energy bills will run up high. Uh, there is a limited amount of foreign reserves that that Belarus has. Uh, these various reforms that need to happen are going to be expensive as well. Unlike many post-communist countries, Belarus never really went through. A proper privatization and restructuring of his industry. So you still have around 60% of the workforce working uh, in state-owned enterprises, many of which are de facto bankrupt. It's just the government sort of, you know, sending checks to to to, to state-owned businesses uh, that produce a loss every year just to keep these people employed. Like these are very hard processes to go through and that there is there is a lot of social disruption that results from it but many post-communist countries most post-communist countries already went through this 20 30 years ago and and, and belarus is only going to go through this process uh now and, and 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 it's going to be you know painful and many people are going to blame the change of leadership and maybe will express nostalgia for, for lukashenko's times if, if if there is a if there is indeed a change of change of government in Minsk. So you just talked about the the West's um, response or what how they should um, respond to the situation. On the other side of the spectrum, what has been the Kremlin's response to the recent protests? I think um, Putin's regime has been somewhat guarded in his public pronouncements about what's happening in Minsk. Um, they follow the situation very closely, just like Putin was terrified of the events on the Maidan in 2014. Uh, I think there is a similar sense of disquiet in the Kremlin uh, about what's happening in Minsk because they do understand that, that Moscow can be next. And there is... Uh, Really, nothing more dangerous for 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 the regime in, in in the Kremlin than the prospect of a democratic 
and successful Belarus. Uh, because if Belarus can be successful as a country that's very close to Russia culturally, politically, historically, uh, Belarusians are effectively bilingual and and, and, and so forth. There's, you know, the affinities are, are really, really tight. Then, uh, then that that entire Putinist narrative that there's something peculiar about Russia that that makes it distinct from the West, that makes it impossible for for Russians to embrace democracy and and open markets and and a liberal society. Uh, that whole narrative just breaks down. So so there's a strong interest on the part of the Kremlin to essentially do everything in their power to sabotage this this, this process that, that seems to be unfolding in, in Belarus that might lead to the ouster of, of Lukashenko and, and maybe a new election and, and the process of, of democratization. How that happens, I think, is very much an open question. So we've seen you know all sorts of reports over the past, past couple of days with um, the head of the FSB, Russian intelligence, coming to Minsk. We've seen reports of uh, unmarked Russian troops and military vehicles crossing into into Belarus. We've seen uh, the efforts of both Lukashenko's and Russian propaganda trying to depict the protests as something that's been orchestrated from the outside. That's an old trick which the Soviet Union used on many occasions. Uh, and that, that Putin used on, 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 on many occasions where never there are protests, uh, it's always uh, the result of the machinations of, of, of the CIA and, 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 and foreign actors. Uh, there's also the sort of idea that NATO through Poland and Lithuania is somehow uh, threatening Belarus, which is, which, is a, which is a ridiculous notion. So, so, so all of these things have been sort of set in motion. I, I'm not sure a final decision has been made yet about about how to proceed because there is, I mean, Lukashenko at some point becomes a liability for the Kremlin. And the, the sort of political reality on the ground seems to be one in which there isn't much of a political future for Lukashenko. So trying to keep him in power might be, might not be the best alternative for Putin. It might be better to maybe let Belarus go through a period of turmoil and have you know another round of elections and then intervene again in some shape or form. I think in retrospect, uh, the the events of 2014 in Ukraine are a warning for 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 the Kremlin because what happened with um, the annexation of Crimea and and the war in eastern Ukraine was was that Ukraine was effectively forced uh, into making a decision about its geopolitical allegiances. And, and, and whereas in the past, uh, after after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I think most Ukrainians uh, had a fairly positive attitude towards Russia. Uh, Twenty fourteen, I think, solved for good this dilemma about where Ukraine belongs, right? Like if if if, if your best friend just invades you and annexes parts of your territory, like you are never going to you know want to do business with with, with them again, and so. So that sort of heavy-handed response could easily backfire in the same way in, in Belarus as well. So, so I think we should have to, we, we, we ought to, I think, watch the situation very carefully, assume that Putin is not going to go anywhere. I think those, those, those interests that I described, the interest in keeping Belarus either a part of, 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 of a Soviet 
of sort of post-Russian sphere of influence or or, or, or keeping it destabilized in case it decides to to, to further its, its links to the West. I, I think those interests are still there and are going to guide the, 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 the Russian leadership. But, but what exactly happens over the next couple of days or weeks, I think is still very much an open question. So how have these protests impacted Belarus's bilateral relationships with its neighbors, including, uh, like we've been talking about, Ukraine, um, and its NATO neighbors such as Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia? Um, it's, it's hard to talk about bilateral relationships as they unfold in, in real time after these elections, right? Because the country has been in such a turmoil that, that this was really no, no time or place for, 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 for sort of you know, bilateral diplomatic relations. Very strikingly, many members of Belarusian diplomatic corps abroad such as the ambassador to Slovakia, essentially defected from, from Lukashenko's regime. And, uh, and, and, and so, so rather than bilateral relationships that, that went in one direction or another, I think it's, it's more arresting to really look at the instances of uh, sometimes just like, you know, like anecdotal episodes like, 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 like this ambassador defecting or, or, or just the fact that the countries are, uh, that might not have had a very friendly or close relationship with, with Lukashenko's Belarus are now standing up in a very sort of firm and, and, and energetic way in defense of, 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 of the Belarusian public, which is now essentially being, uh, being, being repressed and, 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 and put in jail by, 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 by Lukashenko's thugs. So, so when you look at Poland and Latvia and Lithuania, you really have countries that, that, that have now made Belarus their geopolitical priority in a, in a way that I think very few people in those, in those nations' capitals have, 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 have thought about doing that only a few weeks ago. Right? I mean, it really is the number one issue for, for, for them. Uh, you know, in, in the United States, with, with this sort of election season, uh, Belarus unfortunately is, is sort of an a, a afterthought. But but in those countries, uh, it's something that's happening very much on their doorstep, and it's something that they'll be uh, fighting very strongly to get uh, at the forefront of the EU's agenda and NATO's agenda going forward. Uh, but whether it gets there, I think it's, it's it's also an open question because when you look at you know Germany and France. Uh, or, or the UK, uh, like, you know, Belarus, unfortunately, is not a priority. Um, yet, I think having a sort of destabilized country or, or a country that doubles down on, on Lukashenko-style totalitarianism going forward, I think would be a massive liability for Europe and, and, and for the transatlantic alliance. Given everything we've discussed today, we'd like to ask you about what the future of Belarus looks like. In a recent article, you discuss how many Belarusians feel stuck. The Belarusian people do not see a clear direction for their country post-Lukashenko, except for potentially a closer relationship with Russia, which you know, many Belarusians also do not want. Given this ambiguity in future direction, what would success look like for these protesters or for the opposition? I think realistically, uh, a success for, for, for Belarus uh, would look probably still highly unsatisfying to, to an outsider's eyes to probably look something like, like Ukraine today, where you have, you know, a large number of meaningful economic and political reforms 
uh, fighting against corruption, cleaning up the banking sector, uh, getting rid of uh, various forms of state ownership and 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 and, and, and distortionary subsidies in the in, in in the economy. So those sorts of things happened in, in Ukraine since 2014, uh, but there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, and 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 so, so 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 that's going to be, I think, like even even getting Belarus close to to that state would be would be an uphill struggle because in in Ukraine much of that progress happened thanks to the involvement of outside actors, whether it's the EU or or the IMF uh, or even it has to be said the support from the United States and in, in in Ukraine's efforts to defend itself against against Russia. Uh, Unless there is a significant stepping up uh, from the from the part of the European Union and, and the United States and, and other Western actors in in Belarus, I think the more realistic scenario is one in which even if Lukashenko is ousted, the country really remains uh, vulnerable to to Russian interference going forward. So there might be a democratically elected leadership, which will then still end up doing business with the Kremlin, which will still then end up striking some sort of deal over, you know, gas prices or or, or this, that or the other thing. And 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 you still have essentially one form of Russian influence or another preventing a real democratization, a real opening up and and, and the fostering of, of deeper ties, deeper ties with the West. And and the worst scenario, which I think is still very much in the cards, is, is that you have a continuation in some shape or form of the current regime. And to get there, the current regime will have to double down on violence and repression. And I think we'll need external assistance, uh, probably from from Russia. And I think that would be uh, that would be by far the worst thing that, that could happen to to to, to Belarusians. Uh, and it would lead to I think a new wave of, of emigration from the country. Already many Belarusians have left uh, live in neighboring countries including including in, in Poland uh, and, and 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 that would certainly not be a, a happy outcome for for Belarus. That's why I think it's it's really important that we all step up um, that, that that Belarus be not an afterthought even in, in the American political debate, although there is so much else happening at the moment and and, and that we do not let this issue be sidelined by, 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 by the you know, new cycle of the new cycle of the day. I think it, it, it really requires it requires money. It requires clear vision and strategy and and sort of statesmanship. Um, and I'll be doing through my you know, AI work all I can to to, to to make sure people are reminded of of the importance of what's happening in Belarus. I think. You know, it's it's been one of the virtues of America that it always stood up for 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 oppressed people around the world, and I think it's important that 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 America does that this time again. Absolutely, it sounds like there are a lot of potentially negative outcomes on the table here for the Belarusian people, and so paying attention to this and taking action um, is especially important. Um, how will this unrest? potentially affect the economic conditions in Belarus and the region? And how would potentially negative economic impacts affect any sort of political equilibrium? 
I think uh, either way, um, with the COVID crisis, um, the the effects of the current unrest on, on on Belarusian economy are going to be terrible. So, so when you think about the country's foreign currency reserves, which are fairly fairly low, um, you know, unless there is a package of foreign assistance, there is only so much that, that the regime or, or the government in, in Minsk can afford. So, so the moment uh, Russia decides to renegotiate its, 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 its natural gas contracts, for example, it will be the Russians that will have all the leverage, unless there is uh, really a stepping up by, 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 by the IMF or, 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 or the West more broadly, and, and all, all the reforms that I mentioned that need to happen in, in Belarus will have uh, significant consequences in terms of employment, in terms of uh, you know all kinds of hardship that will that 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 that, that, that will happen, and, and in Ukraine that was cushioned to some extent through the continuous financial assistance from the West. Uh, so unless that's forthcoming in in, in Belarus's case. Uh, you know, but the economy is not very far from 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 meltdown. But not to be completely pessimistic, I think there are signs, hopeful signs, in in Belarus's economy of of like how how, how it could be reoriented towards new sectors and and higher value added than than just low grade manufacturing and and food production that's then exported to to Russia, for example, outside of. Of Minsk, you have uh, what is called the High Tech Park, which is essentially a tax-free zone and a domicile for IT companies. Some of them are foreign-owned, some of them are owned by by Belarusian nationals, and uh, and you had all sorts of exciting sort of tech uh, innovations coming out of that, coming out of that space, which then became. Uh, popularized and marketed either through Silicon Valley or, or through through Israeli Israeli um, startups. So 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 there is a burgeoning tech industry. Um, the country used to have you know high standards of sort of you know engineering and and so technical STEM education. So 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 it's not a complete basket. It's even throughout when you look at the economic statistics throughout the post-communist transition. Uh, and the country, in spite of not seeing any kind of significant economic reforms of the sort we saw in places like Poland or, 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 or the Czech Republic or, or the Baltic states, uh, was, was not the basket case, right? It, it, it still maintained uh, per capita income levels that, that exceeded many of the other post, post-Soviet post-Soviet countries, although it would have been far, far better off now if it had gone through the painful economic reforms in the early 1990s, as opposed to as opposed to waiting uh, until until 2020. So, uh, so I think in the in the immediate short run, uh, there is a lot of economic hardship coming Belarus's way. Uh, in the long run, I think there are some promising uh, promising fundamentals that, that the country can leverage in in, in building up. A, a foundation for, for its future economic growth. Well, thank you for raising this important topic to the attention of our listeners, and thank you for explaining what's really at stake here and even some of the opportunities that lay in this region. 
Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Roja. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.